Well, if you would take your copy of God's word with me this morning, open to Lamentations chapter 2 for the reading of our sermon text. I'm only going to read just a couple of verses of Lamentations 2. We're going to read verses 20, 21, a few verses, 22. Lamentations chapter 2, let us now hear together the word of the Lord. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you thus dealt? Should women eat the fruit of their womb and children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets, law of the young and the old, my young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summon As if to a festival day, my terrors are on every side, and on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? I don't know why you keep coming back for this sermon series, but here you are. And that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let us pray together. Oh, Father, this is your word. You have ordained it, inspired it, gifted it to us, the church, that we might hear it, that it might be planted in our hearts and minds deeply in our souls by the work of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that today, oh God, as we walk into these still deeper waters of Lamentations 2 and There's going to be moments that we're going to feel overwhelmed. Lord, would you use your word this morning to build your church, to strengthen your people. May we live lives that would bring you glory, our God, as we live in the context of this fallen world. I pray for those who are unable to be with us today, those who are joining us online, that even in the midst of their homes, You would use your word to build your people, to strengthen their hearts of faith this day. Lord, you have been kind to us. Spirit of God, minister to us now in this most holy moment. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Ashley, thank you for ministering to us today. This is the second time I've got to hear that song today and so, so helpful and appropriate in regard to our study, the book of Lamentations, especially with some of the truths we're going to look at this morning. There's a little phrase in that song, carry me on your mighty wings of grace. I think at the end of this sermon, that's going to be all of our prayers, I hope. So our study of the book of Lamentations, combined with some of the difficulties we are walking through together as a church, to be blunt and honest, has proven rather overwhelming for me personally and I think for many of you. Lamentations is maybe a rather obscure book for most of us in our past, in our reading of God's word. It's difficult 
It takes us, if you will, into the deep end of suffering. And it's going to raise up for us difficult theological questions. Today is going to, going to expose that. It's going to put before us raw emotions of the, of the writer and I think even of us as readers. It's going to raise difficult and hard questions. You're going to see that this morning in chapter 2. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Lamentations at the end of this book is going to leave us all feeling a little bit desperate. Again, I guess that's why I asked the question a moment ago, why do you keep coming to the series? This is my last Sunday preaching Lamentations. Tim is going to mop up my mess. So I'm, I'm going to preach all of my thoughts about Lamentations today because this is it for me. C.S. Lewis last week said to us these words, and it is so true. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. Pain is his megaphone for a deaf world. But I want to I shift that a little bit because I don't want us to hear that and think about others. Because I think Lamentations is not speaking simply to a deaf world Pain is God's megaphone to speak to a deaf church, to us, to our own hearts. Lamentations walks us into thick and dark clouds of life. In the midst of the thick and dark clouds of life, it reminds us slightly and gently, hoping God. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, lament is the cry of the soul. The cry of the God-centered soul who, who stands, if you will, on two grounds. And when those two grounds collide, what is birthed out of that collision is this cry, this lament that we raise up to God. The two grounds are these. One, the character and promises of God. We know them, we rest in them, we rejoice in them. And the other ground is our pain and our suffering. So God and his character and his promises that he's given to us in Christ. And on the other hand, the pain, the confusion, the suffering that we experience in a fallen world. When those two grounds collide, we enter into a state of confusion. And what is birthed in our hearts is a cry of desperation out to God with hard questions but grounded in hope. Last time, well, Tim may say this too. Lamentations consist of five poems. Five chapters, five poems. Chapters one, two, and four are very similar. They're going to carry 22 verses apiece. They're going to follow the Hebrew alphabet. Each letter of the Hebrew alphabet gets one verse. 22 verses, 22 letters. Verses, chapters one, two, and four. Chapter three is a little different. Chapter three gets a little heavy. Chapter three is really the pinnacle of the book, right in the middle of the book. 66 verses, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet gets three verses instead of just one. Chapter five is not poetically clean. It's messy compared to chapters one through four. And it's kind of appropriate because at the end of this book, we feel, we feel like we're left 
a little desperate. The story hasn't been cleaned up. There's no end in sight to the suffering. And whether God intended that to be the case or not, I have no idea. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I I can't speak into that. But I know the feel for me when I come to the end of this particular book of Lamentations is it kind of characterizes in many ways what we experience in this world. There's no end to our suffering in this world, which is why we long and anticipate The next, we're going to sing a song at the end of the gathering this morning, See He Comes. Keith, that's still on the tabs, right? See He Comes. It better be because I'm talking about it. But after the first service, when we finished, when I finished the sermon, I went over and sat down and we started singing that song. I thought, this is, this is the right response to Lamentations longing, a longing that rises up in my heart for that day which God will grant to us when we behold our Savior and all things are made right and good and holy. Lamentations, lamenting, proper lamenting, drives my heart to that day. Today we move to chapter 2. And the author is going to recount for us, continue to recount for us the sufferings of Jerusalem. He's not done. This poetic effort is slow. I mentioned that to you last Sunday morning. This A to Z type poetry causes the author to to put the brakes on and to slow down. To tread with a deliberate pace through the sufferings of Israel, of Judah, Jerusalem. There's no moment where this author is just going to quickly pass by the sufferings. He's going to stop and he's going to set his mind up on them. He is going to properly grieve. Phil Riken writes, Jeremiah's second lament recounts many of the same calamities as the first. This is, this is good pastoral counsel. Listen to what he says. There is something healthy about this. Healing comes through memory, not forgetfulness. And a vital part of the grieving process is honestly confronting what has been lost. The second lament, he writes... Thus deals with a particular kind of sorrow. The sorrow that comes from remembering the days that are no more. If you've ever spent time with someone in their grief and in their pain, you know that's a significant component of their grief. And this author is not letting us move on. For those of you who are suffering now, I think this is a healthy reality. I remember, she's not here today, they're in Lexington, but I remember Becky Valentine early in the days of losing their daughter. I mentioned this to you a few weeks ago. She wrote that little paper, Ditch Friends. She'd probably give that to you if you ask her. If she looks at you strange, don't tell her I told you to ask for it, okay? The idea there is Becky was asking just, 
Just get in the ditch with me of grief. Don't try to pull me out of it. Just come in. And in many ways, that's what this author is doing. In this poetic form, he's slowing it down. He's being delivered. He's pacing himself well so that we enter into this process with him. We enter into his grief. Lamentations 1 focused on the sorrow of Jerusalem. Lamentations 2 is going to come back and retread the sorrow of Jerusalem. But it's going to do something else also. It's going to add to us the cause. It's going to to help us see the cause of Jerusalem's sorrow. So here's your outline if you're taking notes this morning. We're going to look at three sides of chapter 2. One, we're going to see the author again describe the destruction and humiliation of Jerusalem. And it is, I keep you, I don't know any other term to use other than overwhelming. It is. He's going to dive in and he's going to, he's going to talk about the hand of the Lord. Secondly, we're going to see the author's grief. It's going to get first person at this point. He's going to speak of his own heart, how he's grieving. And he's going to turn in that grief and he's going to exhort Jerusalem. And lastly, we're going to see what I read this morning. And that was Jerusalem's response to the exhortation, Jerusalem's lament and prayer. And it's, it's hard. So let's begin by looking at this author and his continued description of Jerusalem's destruction and humiliation. What this author recounts, we've got we to get this in our mind. What this author recounts is the fierce day of the anger of the Lord. So go back to chapter 1 just very quickly if you would. Chapter 1, verse number 12. Right at the very end. If there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. This is how Jeremiah is seeing this day. Look at chapter 2, verse number 22. We just read it a moment ago, but to come back to it. You summoned as if to a festival day, my terrors on every side, and on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. So when when the writer of this lament, be it Jeremiah or not, as he looks up on this scene, what they have experienced, his understanding of this day is it's an expression of the judgment of the Lord. Now before we get into Lamentations 2, on both sides of Lamentations, we find two prophets. We find Isaiah, who is looking out and seeing the coming destruction that Babylon is going to bring. And on the other side of that, we find Ezekiel. If you remember, Ezekiel was one of the young men taken into captivity, if I remember right, during the second phase of this captivity to Babylon. Listen to what these two prophets say about this day that the writer of Lamentations is speaking of. Isaiah, looking forward, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Isaiah spoke about this coming day of which the Lord is going to use Babylon, this wicked nation, to enter into Jerusalem and to undo the city. But what I want you to hear in that, Isaiah looks at this and he says, this is a day of wrath and fierce anger of the Lord. Ezekiel, on the other hand, looks back on this day and Ezekiel writes this, the words of the Lord, Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. So what is happening when Babylon marches into the city, 
destroying her gates and her walls and her temple and her palaces. What is happening as, as these riders look up on it, they see it is, it is the anger of the Lord. God has brought judgment upon the city. Now, with that context and background, go to chapter 2, and here we go. We're going to read now the first 10 verses. Listen to how this writer sees this moment. How the, anger, how, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. So, chapter 1, she's a widow, a woman. Chapter 2, now she's a daughter, Jerusalem. But notice what he says, how the Lord in his anger. Chapter, one, ch- chapter 2, verse 1. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool on the day of his anger. I'm coming back to that in a moment. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy. It's complete. All the inhabitations, all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. Listen, if you're engaged with this, He's just putting it in your face. God has done this. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid it in ruins, its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Theological lesson. The writer steps back, and we're going to see it in a moment. He's experienced the suffering himself. The bitterness of the agony of what the Lord has done. He has experienced it and he's not outside of it. He's in it. And he looks up on this day and what he sees is the hand of God. He doesn't shy away from that. And there are going to be some gruesome details in our discussion this morning. But as the writer looks up on the suffering that Judah has now experienced what the writer sees is this theological category we need to have in our own lives because in the midst of suffering, there is nothing sweeter than to affirm the meticulous, absolute sovereignty of God over all things. Lamentations 3. 
Who has spoken and it came to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? This is a theological difficulty. I told the 9 a.m. service and I'll go ahead and insert it here. This particular understanding of God raises many, many questions. But I cannot imagine suffering in this world without a firm conviction that my God is absolutely sovereign over everything. Amos chapter 3, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? I mean, you hear this affirmation as this writer begins to tread through and recounting the story of everything that is happening behind it and in it and over it is this affirmation of the author of the absolute sovereignty of God over all things in the midst of our suffering. We could go to many, many examples of this in the scriptures, maybe none more so than Job. And when you read first couple of chapters of Job, and, and, and not from an, uh, an American style. We don't lament in America. But when you read Job and you settle in for a moment, and you see the sweeping devastation that this individual has now experienced, it is, it undoes the human heart. And then you hear his response to his wife, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He, he gives and he takes. In other words, in the midst of the rawness of suffering, there was never this fleeting moment where Job did not have that conviction, if you will, that God is absolutely sovereign in the midst of the suffering. And Lamentations 2 puts that in our faces. The Lord has done this. The Lord has done this. He has purposed this. The destruction he brings up on Jerusalem is complete. I mean, it is overwhelming. Our word of the day. Just a few weeks ago, we walked through the catechism. And we walked through the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. That threefold office of Christ is built up on the Old Testament roles that are so primary in the context, especially of Israel, the role of a prophet, the role of a priest, and the role of a king. Well, those three roles take not only a prominent place and significant role in the life of Israel, but as we move into the New Testament, we see how Jesus steps into our fallen world, and he fulfills those three roles perfectly. He is our prophet, and our priest, and our king, and we, we love to talk about it. The catechism just it puts that in front of us. Well, what's interesting is you read through Lamentations chapter 3, chapter 2, you're going to see those three roles and how the Lord brings them to naught. The role of a prophet, the role of a priest, and the role of a king. Let your eyes linger down just through a few verses, if you would, please. Look at verse number 2. Back up. Look at verse number 1. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. This is the phrase I was coming back to. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. I mean, this is an astounding statement. He has not remembered his footstool. The footstool here is probably a reference to the Ark of the Covenant or to the temple. 
And in this moment of judgment, God does not remember the ark of his covenant, the place of his presence, the temple, and this covenant that he establishes. He does not remember them. Look at verse number two. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has undermined the kings of Israel, of Judah. Look at verse number six. He laid waste to his booth like a garden, his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion to forget festival and Sabbath. Verse 7, the Lord scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered it into the hand of his enemy. I mean, it's, it's almost unintelligible for us to read this. Not only has God cut down the king of Judah, but God likewise is undermining the priest and the system of sacrifice and worship and festival in the context of his people. Look at verse number 9. Her kings and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. So the prophet and the priest and the kings now are undone under the anger and judgment of the Lord. I mean, it's complete judgment. Complete judgment the Lord has rendered upon his people. Look at verse number 10. This kind of gives us this, the, the status, if you will, of Jerusalem in the midst of this judgment. The elders of the dying of Zion, daughters of Zion, set on the ground in silence. She's been humbled. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. I mean, this, this is the result now of the work of the Lord. And, and he's going to summarize it here as he looks up on Jerusalem. And you can imagine the devastation this author has seen. He's been in it. He's experienced it. He, he looks up on Jerusalem and there sit the elders of Jerusalem. They're on the ground. They have nothing to say before the Lord. They've thrown dust up on their heads. Sackcloth is up on them. The young women of Jerusalem, their heads are now bowed to the ground. The Lord has done this. She is humiliated. Now, to compound this even more, look at verse number 14. Or excuse me, verse number 15. The enemies are laughing. All who pass by along the way clap their hands at you. Here they are, in the dust, humiliated, mourning. And all the enemies, the, the, the Gentiles, the pagans, they pass by and they clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Listen to what they say. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss and they gnash their teeth. They cried, we have swallowed her. Oh, this is the day we long for. And now we have it. We see it. So not only is Jerusalem suffering and deprived and hurting and in agony and pain, but all of the enemies of Israel and Judah, they walk by and whatever it means, they wag their heads at them. They mock them. They laugh. How bitter this must have been. 
how bitter this must have been for the people of God. This theological truth that, that rods in this text is that God is absolutely, meticulously sovereign. Notice back in verse number 16, the nations walk by and they say, we have swallowed her up. Such pride and arrogance, isn't it? And yet we know, if you scoot down now to verse number 17, it is the Lord who has done this. He has brought to pass what he purposed. He has carried out his word, that which he commanded long ago. That's kind of the theological conclusion, if you will, as this writer looks up on this scene and the devastation that has now brought up on Jerusalem. As he looks up on it, what he sees there, the purpose of the Lord stands. That's what Daniel said. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he wills. Some of you are walking through days of suffering. Some of you are in dark clouds. And I am not in any way giving you answers. But I do want you to see what chapter 2 affirms and what chapter 2 draws from the whole of Scripture. In your dark clouds, God is absolutely sovereign. Let's look at the prophet's grief. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. It goes first person now. He writes, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground. This is an issue we raised very early on in the sermon series. The godly suffer with the wicked. I think we can make a right assumption that this particular prophet, whomever he may be, Jeremiah more than likely, is a faithful man. He had sought to honor his God and to keep the covenant which God had established with his nation. This was a man who loved the law of God. And in the midst of all of the suffering that has permeated the people of God, he, he is experiencing it with them. And notice what he says. This is all he can do. His eyes are spent with weeping. His stomach is turning within. He, he throws up, if you will, because he is so overwhelmed by this sense of agony and despair that the Lord has brought up on them. The faithful are swept right up into this suffering with the wicked. This author is not simply reporting facts like a newspaper writer standing on the outside. This author is right in the midst of it. He is deeply affected by what the Lord has rendered in Jerusalem. You know, when you read those words, many of you know exactly how he feels. And for those of you who don't, you will soon enough. This is what true lament is. It is weeping. It is a stomach that is turned upside down. Because your eyes look out and you see immense suffering. Or maybe your eyes are just looking right around you and in your own life. 
but you weep not simply because it hurts, you weep in confusion because you know God and his promises. Look at the prophet's exhortation, verse 18. He writes to Jerusalem, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Here's what he encourages them toward. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, no respite, arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night, watch it, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Go back just quickly to verse number 12 or 11. This is why this author is weeping. Verse 11, because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and where is the wine as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. You remember the story behind this? When Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, it was a month-long advancement up on the city. The end result of that was one of two choices. You exit the city and fight and die by the sword, or you stay within the city and you die of starvation. This author now has looked up on the city and he has seen this. I mean, it's so graphic. Infants and babies who are fainting and dying of starvation. They cry out to their parents, where is my food and where is my drink? And then he notes at the end of verse number 12, they go to their mother's bosom to find that food and that nourishment only to faint like a wounded man. Da. I mean, it is so graphic. That's why he says back over in verse number 18, listen, let your tears stream down day and night. Give yourself no rest. Arise and cry out in the night. Lift your hands up to him for the lives of your children. This author stands in suffering and this author exhorts the people of Jerusalem to cry out to God. I mean, this is his counsel. To lift up their hearts to God, to God and to cry out to God. It goes back to the first week we talked about this. That our, our God is, he's a big God. He is able and sufficient. He's got big, mercy-filled shoulders. And this author knows that. So he tells them, he exhorts them, go to that God and cry out to that God. Look at verse number 19. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. You see, earlier we talked about him destroying the temple. He destroyed his footstool, the Ark of the Covenant. These are the things that marked the presence of the Lord. They are now gone and destroyed. But this author reminds them God is still present. God is still present. Go to him. Cry out. Look at the city's response. Verse number 20, this is the text we read earlier. There's two aspects of the response I want you to see this morning. 
one of the hard questions that are asked. Verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you thus dealt? Now here's the questions. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? I mean, they, they come to God and they raise up these incredibly difficult questions. Their pain that they're experiencing. Should women really eat of the fruit of their womb? You remember what chapter 4 speaks of. When these children die in the city, the end result of this was cannibalism. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost unfathomable to us. But this was the desperation that they were experiencing in the city of Jerusalem. And so the cry of, the, of Jerusalem, the cry of the inhabitants, rises up to God and it is this. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my old young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You have summoned as if to a festival day. My terror is on every side. On the day of the angry Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. That's kind of what lament is. Lament asks God hard questions. It's funny, I've been pastoring for almost 21 years. And I've never felt the freedom until this preaching series to ask God hard questions. I've been in several prayer meetings lately as our members cry out to the Lord. And I've heard some of you and, and I've heard my own voice ask God hard questions like, why? How? For what purpose? But this is what lament is. It is this raw emotion that rises up in our heart and we, we ask God questions that only he is able to respond to and answer. Second aspect of this response is just implicitly to see not only the recognition in chapter 2 of God's sovereignty, but also the recognition of his goodness. This first line of verse number 20, look, O Lord, and see. I mean, this is the proper response in the midst of this kind of suffering. It's a call of, of the sufferer to God. Pay attention. Don't neglect us. Turn to us. Or the ultimate prayer of the Old Testament, make your face to shine upon us, O God. It is the desperate cry of those who are suffering and in agony in this world. There's no secret formula. There's no step-by-step process. To deal with grief in this world. Verse 20 summarizes it well. Look, O oh Lord. It is simply a cry of trust and dependency upon God. 
one of the roles that lamentation should play in our lives is to call us in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of all the chaos and pain and hurt that we experience in this world, one of the roles that lamentation should play in our lives is to call us to our God. Just to, just to call us, just to push us and to pull us to God. Because we know, we know God, even though we experience what we experience in this world, we know God is sovereign, yes, but we know God is right and wise. We know God is true and just. We know he's kind and gracious. We know God is loving and merciful. We know God is a father who disciplines those whom he loves. We know those truths. Lamentations is calling us to affirm those and to believe those about our God. Even in the midst of confusion and pain that we are all experiencing. I want to conclude with this. There's two, two groups of people in this room or watching us online this morning. There are those of you who are not suffering. Providentially, the sun is shining upon your lives and you are not walking through difficulties. Well, what I hope Lamentations does for those of you in that category is it sobers us. I want Lamentations to have that ministry of grace in our lives to help us understand and to look and to behold those around us who are truly suffering. We live in a country and in a church, the American church, where it is so easy to us to become desensitized to suffering. It's easy for us to get swept up into all the bitter arguing of a political season or of whatever issues that we're arguing over today and to miss those who are truly and genuinely suffering. I hope Lamentations calls us to this kind of lifestyle where we look up on this world and we see those who are suffering and we don't want to pull them out of their grief, but we want to step into their grief with them, to love them and to weep with those who are weeping. I preached a sermon here a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday night out of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who look up on the world and take note of the chaos that sin has wrecked upon us, in ourselves, upon our church, and upon our world. And our response to that is, we enter into mourning and we weep. Listen, it is so easy in the world of social media and cable news to get so distracted and angry about everything. I hope what Lamentations does in this season is to pull us away from that and to see the suffering. And as a church, be willing to step into that suffering and to weep with those who weep. So for those of you in that category, this is my last sermon on Lamentations. Tim's got the rest of them. Okay, so I'm, I'm getting it all out right now. And those of you in that category, what I hope Lamentations does for us is it strengthens us and equips us to be that kind of people, to look for those who are suffering, to look for those who are weeping, and to enter into their lives with them. And we have that here at Randolph Street. 
we are walking through unusual days. The other group of people that are here online joining us this morning are those who are suffering. Those who are in the midst of thick and dark clouds. I hope Lamentations, though as hard as it is, and next week we get just a moment, just a moment in Lamentations where we get to pull the shades back and we're going to see the sun shining, okay? We're going to see it next week. But for those of you who are in the midst of suffering right now, what I hope Lamentations does for you is just to call you back to your God. Gently, patiently, kindly, call you back to remember that your only hope and your only comfort is your God. And that, my brothers and sisters, is enough. That's enough. If you're one of those sufferers, I think of what Keith and his response to the confession this morning, our confessional statement. If you're one of those sufferings this morning, if you're one of those in that category, you want to know how much the Father loves you, look at the cross. If you've got pain in your soul right now, I'm not here to give you any answers that will solve your problems. Oh, but I am here this morning to call you to the one who can give you eternal comfort and joy. You want to know how much he loves you, this father? Look at his son. Look at the cross. This God loves you. This God loves you this morning. Oh, I hope Lamentations, as we move toward the end of it, I hope Lamentations is a balm to your weary soul this day. Hope in God. Only He can grant you the comfort you need. Let us pray together. Father, this book is so helpful. We do not need to hide our pain, our suffering, our anguish, but you call us to lament and to bring those struggles to your throne of grace. So I pray for your church here at Randolph Street in the months and years to come. Lord, we want to be a church that doesn't stick our head in the proverbial sand and ignore the realities of our day. We want to enter into the challenges of our brothers and sisters, enter into their struggles, their suffering. Oh, may lamentations make us sensitive to that. I think of the crowd, this author, how his heart turned stomach, how he wept. 
Let us be a church that mourns over the suffering of this world, but oh God, let us step into that and use us as servants of your grace in the lives of our brothers and sisters. So for us as a church, equip us, oh God, to be ministers of mercy, grace. For those within our church family who are walking through those dark clouds, these deep waters, oh Lord, Spirit of God, would you be gracious to them in this season and let them see anew and afresh the love you have for them in Christ. May they experience the overwhelming nature of your grace and mercy, even in the bitterness of their agony. May they taste of the sweetness of the gospel. Oh God, do that work. Do not allow the evil one to capture hearts and minds in the midst of suffering. Lord, keep your people close. Father, show them your mercy and your grace. Show them, O oh God, your care, your concern. as they pour their souls out to you. So Lord, we pray that you do a good and holy work in your people as we continue to move through this scripture. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing. Thank you, Keith, for leading us today. If you are walking through just a difficult season and you would like someone to pray with you, we will have folks present up front after our gathering. If I could ever encourage you as a church to engage in prayer for your church family, now is that season. Let us ask God to be gracious and merciful. Let us pray for one another. Let us be ministers of mercy and grace to those who are walking through deep waters and for those of you who are in those waters, oh, may God grant comfort to your souls this day. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, our final hearing of the word of God this morning. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. And establish them in every good work and word. And the people of God reply, amen.